The song we have just sung encourages us and reminds us to consider the destination for which all of God's people are destined for. It encourages us to recognize and remember that this world and this life is not all that there is. It encourages us to consider that others have gone before us. Others are awaiting for us. And that this journey we are on is a journey towards that celestial city as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress is journeying on. We don't have many songs about heaven. We don't have many songs that encourages us to be yearning for, to desire to arrive. So this song is one of those songs that adds to our repertoire of songs that just helps us sing about heaven. This morning, as we look at God's word, we will be reminded that God's salvation is not merely a ticket, a free pass that helps us escape the flames of hell. And there's more to what God wants us to do and experience as he saves us. So as we consider the grace of God, a grace by which God has elected us, a grace by which God has saved us, we get to hear more about the grace and mercies of God in the present time as we are journeying towards that future destiny that God has prepared for all his people. So I encourage you and invite you to open God's word to Romans chapter 12. We'll be reading the shortest passage in the sermon series, just two verses. Seriously, this is the shortest it'll get in the series. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here is God's word as we consider the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in asking God to bless the preaching of this word and the hearing for our hearts. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have revealed your word to us and you have revealed in your word what is your will for us. Father, I pray that you would equip me and empower me to proclaim this word as you have intended it. And I pray that you would help us all to hear it for the glory of Christ and for our ongoing edification. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And in the, through the presence and the power of your spirit among us. Amen. Mercies that transform. When you hear about the word mercy or pleading for mercy, what is it that you typically think about? Lord, have mercy. Lord, show yourself merciful towards me. Typically, we think of some level of receiving something that we don't deserve. Receiving something good. This morning, we want to look at a facet 
of God's mercies that have to do not so much with what we receive, but how we respond in light of what we have received. And the theme of this morning's message could be summarized in these words, mercies that transform. For 11 chapters, Paul has been teaching about what God has done for us in Christ. What sinners have come to experience through Jesus. The starting point of this letter is that sinners deserve rightly the wrath of God. And actually, in chapter 1, we have been told that God has already revealed his wrath. He has already begun displaying his wrath against sinners who have rebelled against God, our maker. Because we, humanity, have rejected God as our creator and have exchanged his glory and the worship of him for worshiping things in this creation. Yet God, in his mercy, provided an escape from this wrath. In chapter 3, he told us that God has revealed a righteousness. He revealed his righteousness to us, which can become ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that we all have been required to live but failed to do so. It is Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners, in the place of all those who would trust and repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And in chapters 4 through 11, Paul unfolded for us the great benefits of salvation. We received it by faith in chapter 4. We have been adopted through this faith, we have been adopted into God's family. We receive the Holy Spirit, which enables us to, to turn away from our old selves and gives us the assurance of future glory. We do not boast in the salvation as if it's our own choosing or our own work, but we cultivate humility because we know that our salvation is entirely through God's electing grace and because of his mercy. Chapters 1 through 11 unfolded for us the many facets of the gospel of God, of the grace of God, and of the mercies of God. And now that this gospel has been defined and explained, Paul now turns in chapter 12 turns his attention to how should Christians live the Christian life? How should we as Christians live our lives in light of the mercies of God that have saved us? The mercies of God are not merely a free pass to get out of hell. The mercies of God are now the foundation to appeal to Christians to live a transformed life. Now, there are two dangers of misunderstanding this text. There are two dangers that we can misuse this text. The first danger is one that was illustrated to me this week um, when in our elders' meeting, we were reading this passage. We always read a passage that's coming up for Sunday. And uh, Pastor Ryan commented this week in our elders' meeting how this text has been his favorite passage even before he was saved. And I remember being startled by that. How can you um, choose this text as a favorite passage even before you're saved. In my mind, it's like, that's not possible. Who in their right mind, not that Pastor Ryan was not in his right mind, but actually the more I thought of it, it's like, oh, I, I think I understand what he's coming from. 
and he would tell you this and ask him more later. But he has grown up, and, and many in, in America live with what's called a, a, a moralistic Christianity or moralistic deism. A, a, a view of Christianity that just focuses on do certain morals. And if you just do these verses, you'll be fine. As if the book of Romans started with chapter 12. And there's a way to read chapters 12, 1 through 2, as if this is what makes us Christians. As if, as if this is what gets us to be Christians, to become Christians. There is a moralistic religion in America, and it is oftentimes uh, flagged or promoted as Christianity. That as long as you just live out this high moral life, uh, you're fine. How is that possible? If we try to live out the commands or the appeals of these verses without embracing and believing what Paul has been teaching us in the first 11 chapters, you are going to live out this moralistic, therapeutic, so-called Christianity. That's one danger. But the other danger is on the opposite side of the spectrum. To preach the gospel presented to us in chapters 1 through 11 and fail to preach chapter 12. As a result of what this gospel produces in us. To preach a gospel that causes people to make decisions for Jesus but does not produce any holiness of life. This too would be a distortion of the full picture of the gospel message and of what Paul is teaching. To preach a gospel that does not change the course of our lives and therefore how we live is to misconstrue the good news of God's salvation. So it's important for us to clarify that the commands of this text and of the rest of this book come after Paul has labored for 11 chapters to clarify the gospel of God, to clarify, to clarify for us the grace of God in saving us by his mercies. But it's also important to recognize that once we understand the first 11 chapters of this book, God is not done with us. His mercies for us are not merely a get out of jail free pass. But his mercies for us now are the foundation for motivating us to live a transformed life. Those who are saved by God's mercies are now called and enabled to live differently. So the, the main argument that this passage seeks to convince us today is that God's mercies motivate our transformation and renewal. God's mercies motivate our transformation and renewal. And I wonder today if when you think of God's mercies, if this picture comes to your mind, motivation for transformation. Most of us think of God's mercies as merely recipients of God's undeserved kindness. And that is a very important part of God's mercies. I do not want to diminish that part of God's mercies. But this passage today is an appeal that Paul makes to Christians by the mercies of God. Have the motivation for transformation. Two ways that Paul motivates us to experience and pursue this transformation. Point number one, God's mercies lead us to total life devotion. God's mercies lead us to total life devotion. And point number two, 
God's mercies motivate us to live a transformed life. God's mercies motivate us to live a transformed life. Let's see how Paul unfolds this for us in verse 1. God's mercies lead us to a total life devotion. Paul says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, to our modern day uh, years, this text sounds a bit strange because people today don't bring physical animal sacrifices to their gods. We have other ways in which we worship our idols today. But physical lambs or goats is not the way we worship our gods today, like society around us. But if we're going to hear the surprise of this imagery and the powerful effect this imagery had on the first audience, we must go to that first ancient world setting. Imagine worshipers wanting to worship their idols, their gods. And part of that worship involved bringing animal sacrifices as a means of expressing gratitude to God, as a means of worshiping God, they would bring animals or grains or other subject, or objects. That practice was very common in the ancient world. Gratitude and worship was the motivation often for such sacrifices. Our brother Sam this week was sharing with us, with me and some others, that he's been reading the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is a book full of instructions of what kind of animals and other objects to bring as an offertory to God in worship. If you just want to have a, a, a refresher on that, read the book of Leviticus. And then, said, and then I read the text for Sunday. And realize that New Testament believers are also called to bring sacrifices to God. And those sacrifices are very different. Paul indeed uses this imagery of the Old Testament, starting with the book of Leviticus and, and other parts of the Old Testament where God wants worshipers to bring off offerings to him. Some indeed were offerings of, for sin and guilt, but others were offerings of gratitude of thanksgiving to God, of worship for what God has done. And Paul uses this imagery of bringing offerings to God in worship and speaks of how Christians should view their Christian lives. What are we Christians to present to God as an offering of gratitude or worship? It's not animals, nor food, nor other things, but our very own bodies. The call to present God a sacrifice as an act of worship is not new, not surprising, but the call to present oneself as an offering, that's very strange. That's very surprising. To present yourself as, an, as a sacrifice, as an offering, is a picture here and a sign of a total life devotion to God. To bring to God your entire being. Now, in our Christian community uh, and in American evangelicalism, we've heard this phrase uh, focusing on the heart. Give your heart to the Lord. It's, it's well-intended. Because a heart is the center of our entire being. It's a, it's a control place of everything that defines us. So in that sense, that's a, that, that is correct. But sadly, this phrase has come to, to take on other meanings, such as God only cares about your inner life. 
Just give your life, your, your heart to Jesus. Friends, this passage tells us that God does not want merely your heart. He wants your body. He wants everything you do with your body to be given to him. Your entire being, everything you do, everything you say, everything you think, everything you feel, everything. God is not interested merely in the heart, but in your everything, everything about you that makes you, you. Everything you do with your body in terms of when people see you and when people don't. This means giving to the Lord and, and offering yourself to God, not only when people see you at church, but also everything that you do in your private experiences. Everything as an act of worship to God. Because now, Paul says, your body is a sacrifice to God. And Paul includes three descriptions about the sacrifice to God. How should the sacrifice to God be? Three descriptions. Living, holy, and acceptable. Now, the fact that this sacrifice is a living sacrifice may feel like an oxymoron. In the Old Testament, when you brought an animal as a sacrifice, as an offering to the Lord, it was to be killed. It's possible saying, hey, listen, this is not about self-harm, physically speaking. You keep living your physical life, continuing to live your physical life. It's just a, it's a, it's a weird imagery here. You keep living your life, your physical life, and, but you're a sacrifice. I don't think that's what Paul is intending with this use of the word living. The word living here has to do with a new life of the believer. The word living here has to do with a spiritual life that God has brought to us by his mercies as we have seen in the first 11 chapters. The fact that this sacrifice is a living sacrifice is not intended to refer to physical life, but spiritual life. It is only those who have been brought to new life with God that can live their lives as a sacrifice. So this image is not a paradoxical image, though it seems so. The image simply means that we are to bring ourselves as a sacrifice to God because we have the life of God in us. We are a living sacrifice. This is the amazing work of God. God brings us to life with Christ so that we may die to ourselves and live for God. Have you ever think, thought about the fact this is why Jesus died for you? Not merely so that you don't have to die. That's true about hell. But Jesus died so you and I can die to ourselves and then be risen raised with Christ to a new life. A sacrifice that is living, the new life of God in us. The second description is a sacrifice that is holy. One of the meanings of the word holy is that it's to be devoted to God. To say that the sacrifice of our bodies are now a holy sacrifice means that we are devoting our body, everything we do in our body, with our body, we are devoting it to God. So yes, what you do with your body, in your body, is to be devoted to God. Husbands, you come home during the week from a crazy day, difficult day, frustrating day, tiring day, and you come home and you just want some peace and quietness. And instead of finding a home that is peaceful and quiet, and everything is just perfectly arranged so you can come home and just relax. <laughs> There's chaos. Things are not done well. Your wife can't wait for you to get home and take care of the kids because she has had enough for the day. And in those moments, you're not thinking, 
let me have a moment of worship. You're not thinking, how can I serve God best in this glorious, glorious opportunity? No, you're thinking, how can I have what I need? And this text would tell you, bring your, your body as a sacrifice when you come home from work. Make it living. And make it holy. Make that time to be devoted to God. It's just an example of a way we can think about everything we do with our bodies as being devoted to God. So when you stand in traffic and the person cuts you off, or you're late because you left late with no margin, and now traffic is crazy and your whole mindset is thrown off, bring your body as a sacrifice to God in that moment to be holy, devoted to God. And Paul says this third description is not only living and holy, it's also acceptable to God. Uh, we know if you read the, the book of Leviticus and other passages in the Old Testament that certain sacrifices were not acceptable to God. Being acceptable to God as a sacrifice was a big deal. And Paul tells us what is acceptable to God as a sacrifice. When you bring your body as a sacrifice, that is an acceptable offering. This is a way of saying that God is not content with mere part of our bodies. God is not content merely with our minds or merely with our hearts. He actually wants everything. It's the sacrifice that is acceptable to God is the sacrifice of our entire being. God is not interested in a half-hearted devotion, in a divided life in which you're one person on Sunday and another person the rest of the week. The sacrifice that is acceptable to God is the sacrifice of a whole life devotion. And this is possible only through the new life that we have from God. Well, friends, we have to fight the urge of giving God only a portion of our lives. It's easy for us to try to bargain deals with God and just give him some portion, but not everything. The sacrifice that is pleasing to God is our whole selves. Again, this sacrifice, it's important for us to clarify, this sacrifice of our lives is not a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. It's not the sacrifice that appeases God to make him more favorable towards us. Oh, friends, no, no, no. Paul explained in chapters 1 through 11 what it took for the wrath of God to be turned away from ourselves. It took the sacrifice of another, of the truly perfect lamb, of the Son of God. It is his sacrifice that cleanses us of our sins and our guilt and diverts the wrath of God from being against us and turning God to become favorable towards us so that all those who trust and, and believe on Christ have that change of the wrath of God diverted. So this sacrifice of ourselves is not to put the wrath of God away from us. But our sacrifice that we are called to bring to God, while it is not a sacrifice of salvation, it is a sacrifice of worship. And this is what Paul tells us at the end of verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is why we're bringing our bodies as a sacrifice as an act of worship. And this phrase, spiritual sacrifice or spiritual worship, is sometimes misunderstood as if it's referring to worship that is spiritual as opposed to 
the, the, the material dimension of our worship or the, the physical dimension of our worship. That is a wrong comparison. That is not the comparison. The, the point of spiritual worship, actually the word for spiritual worship could also be translated just as well uh, through the word rational or reasonable worship. So let's read this passage again with the word rational or reasonable. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Do hear a slightly different emphasis. And personally, I think that's the emphasis by this phrase. In other words, the point is that in light of the mercies of God, to bring us salvation through Jesus, in light of his mercies to elect us and to save us, the reasonable response is a total devotion to God as an act of worship. That that is a, a reasonable response. It's not an optional response. It's not a response only for the super-Christians, what some have called the higher life theology, of those who really want to walk with God on the peaks of the Christian life. This passage is not for super-Christians. This passage should be the norm for everyday Christians. In other words, such a sacrifice to God should be viewed as a natural consequence of understanding the mercies of God. In His mercies, God has given us His Son. In His mercies, Jesus gave His body to be broken, His blood to be shed. In light of the mercies of God, which manifested in this physical body of Jesus, you and I are invited to give our bodies as a sacrifice to God, living, holy, and acceptable. And this is reasonable worship. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautiful, beautifully, yielding one's whole self to God is eminently reasonable since God has been so merciful failure to dedicate one's life to him is a height of folly and yet friends often the gospel we preach leave this out leaves us out so when people hear about the call of Romans 12 verse 1 that our whole life must be devoted to him it feels like an like an extra optional crazy feature it should not feel crazy, and it should never feel like an optional call. Paul wants us to see our whole life devotion to God as the ordinary, reasonable response for every Christian. Are you surprised by this? Do you see it this way? Or have you bought into a distorted view of God's mercies that God's mercy somehow just leaves you the way you are? Do you see God's mercies as simply giving you a pass in your life? If so, this passage wants to change and correct that impression of God's mercies. God's mercies lead us to a total life devotion, and this total life devotion is the reasonable worship. This total life devotion is unpacked in verse 2. What does it mean to, to see your whole life as an offering to the Lord? Holy, living, and acceptable to God. What does that mean? Point number two. In verse two, we see a, a big principle unfolded. And that is God's mercies motivate us to live a transformed life. God's mercies motivate us to live a transformed life. Paul introduces in verse 2 uh, two imperatives. One, a negative imperative, and the other, positive imperative. 
And, and these imperatives actually unpack the, the picture of offering our bodies as a sacrifice to God. What does this mean? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, it's not a coincidence that the first dimension of what it means to have a whole life devotion to God is defined by a contrast with the world or, or with this age as the, world could, the word could be translated. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this age. I wonder, what do you think that means for you? What does it mean for you to take on this command and say, do not be conformed to this world, to this age? On one side, it should mean, don't allow this age, this world, to mold our lives in how we think and in how we have our life principles, what guides our, our living, our value system. What we do with our lives should not be molded by this world, by this age, but it should be different. Yet, friends, this is an uphill battle. Some months ago, I was watching a, uh, a movie with our children, and it was, we were flying, so it was one of those, you don't have many options to choose. Um, and there's, there was no good options. But I thought, let me take the, the least possibly bad option. So I did. And I was watching it with them. And I was deeply disturbed and saddened and alarmed that a movie that was incredibly funny was very aggressively sowed with an ideology about what it means to be a human being that was deeply inimical, antithetical to how God speaks about what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Let's be very clear and honest, this world and this age is trying to shape and mold the imagination, the mindset, of, our, of us, and it's, they start with children. So parents, don't be ignorant or naive that this world has an agenda to mold our children in its image and likeness. And it does so while trying to be incredibly funny, and they accomplished to do both. But it's not just that the world is trying to mold and shape our children. The, more, the world is trying to shape and mold our thinking as adults all the time. Be vigilant. Be discerning. Friends, in the sexual revolution that we are experiencing, this world wants to redefine what it means to be male and female. What it means to be a human being. But don't think that the molding and the conformity to this age is just about the big changes of ideologies. Friends, our view of relationships and money, of our jobs, of how we just think of entertainment, of what we consume as entertainment to relax, that too is an arena that this age is using to mold you and to shape you and to shape us. Friends, have you considered asking trusted spiritual friends to give you feedback in how they might observe ways in which your life is being conformed to the pattern of this age? Have you given permission to others around you to flag you when they see you fall in the trap of letting this age 
the world's way of thinking about life, relationships, community, what we have, what we are, when those shape the way we think, are you giving permission to others to ask you, to challenge you? Don't be conformed to the image of this world. The God's mercies motivate us not only to the do not be conformed, but positively to be transformed. Look again at verse 2. Do not be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's a call here on every Christian to pursue ongoing transformation. And I love how Bible teacher Tom Schreiner said it beautifully. The mercies of God summon us to active effort. Let me say that again. The mercies of God summon us to active effort, but this active effort, if it is based in the, in the indicatives of God's grace, should never be confused with legalism. Legalism takes the commands of the Bible and uses them as foundation for our salvation. But gospel-fueled obedience considers the commands of the Bible to be an expression of our worship once we have been saved. Big difference. So the call to transformation should not be viewed as legalism, but as worship. Is this how you view this command, this call? Not to be conformed, but to be transformed. Remember that verse 2 is unpacking for us the the spiritual worship that Paul spoke about in verse 1. And verse 2 not only commands us to pursue the path of transformation, but it also gives us the means of that transformation and the goal of that transformation. Look at the means for this transformation. Be transformed. Through what? By what? Paul says, by the renewal of your mind. Now the fact that the transformation that we are called to, to experience is through the renewal of the minds, suggests that to be conformed to this age also has to do first and foremost with our thinking. The molding to this age is at the level of our minds, first and foremost. Just as the transformation ought to happen first and foremost with, with a renewed thinking. The thinking that patterns uh, the thinking that, that follows the ignorance of God or the rejection of God is, is a, the thinking that, that conforms to this age. Forsaking conformity to this age and seeking transformation has a lot to do with the realm of our thinking. And this is particularly important in the book of Romans. And here's why. Remember Romans 1. Remember where we started in this book? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And the wrath of God is revealed and manifested already against humanity. Romans 1 is not speaking about the future wrath of God. Romans 1 is speaking about the present wrath of God. And just as, we, as a reminder, we've seen how that wrath of God is being manifested against humanity. There's three phrases, and God gave them over as a manifestation of the wrath of God. The first manifestation of that, this is just a review, is that God gave them over to dishonorable, I'm sorry, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. Second, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Thirdly, God gave them over to a debased mind, to a corrupt thinking. The corruption of the mind is the manifestation of God's wrath against a rebellious humanity. That was the message of Romans 1. But here in Romans 12, we see the undoing of the wrath of God in those who have come to experience God's mercies. They are now being transformed by the renewal of the mind. In God's mercy, he does not leave our thinking patterns to be the same as the people of Romans 1. He's changing the way we think. 
And by changing the way we think, it should affect the way we live. Have you heard people say, Christianity is calling you to check your brains at the door? Nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel does not call you to check your brains at the door. It actually brings you new life so that your mind can actually be renewed. Our transformation happens through the renewal of our minds. And you say, well, what, what, what renews our, our minds? The word of God. If this world wants to mold us into its patterns, so also God's word wants to transform our thinking by telling us what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Well, friends, how are you letting God's word renew your mind? When you spend time in God's word daily, it's not just to check off a box. It's a time to worship God. It's a time to let his word Continue to mold your way of thinking and being. When you pray and you bring your desires to the Lord, it's not just checking off a box. It's a time to spend time with a God who brings you life and who renews you by His Spirit as you commune with Him in prayer. Friends, the means of this transformation is the renewal of our minds, and the renewal of our minds happens as we receive the life of God and as we spend time with God in His Word and in prayer. Paul not only tells us how we experience this transformation, but he tells us for what purpose we experience this transformation. The goal of living a transformed life, the goal of experiencing this renewal of the mind is so that you may Keep growing in this transformation. Look at the end of verse 2. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The transformation that Paul wants Christians to experience will help them grow in discerning what God's will is so that they may apply God's word to their lives. The will of the Lord that Christians will discern is not here talking about the guiding will of God, like which job to take or what school to go to. Although we should seek God to, to help us and guide us in, in those decisions for sure. But here, the phrase that you may discern what is the will of God is referring to understanding God's word and how it applies to every life situation. Discerning how we live this transformation in the everyday life and circumstances. This is what the people of Romans 1 did not do. They knew about God, but they did not treat him as God. They did not accept his will. They did not find his will as good or acceptable as perfect and perfect. They replaced it with their own will, with their own worship and self-worship. Friends, imagine when a young Christian man falls in love with a girl who is not a Christian. And he wants to pursue that relationship, even though Scripture teaches us that we should not yoke ourselves to non-believers. How easy it is for us to, to question and dismiss God's will or to find a way to go around it. And yet in such situations, we see how much we are allowing ourselves to be conformed to this world instead of being transformed by the renewal of our minds. In such instances, we have an opportunity to test and apply God's word to our lives. But we can only discern well God's will, and we can only find it good and acceptable and perfect if we are choosing the path of being transformed through the renewal of the mind and constantly fight against being conformed to the pattern of this world. If you're continuing to think like the world, you will adopt the norms and the value systems of this world. And you will not discern what God's will is. And if other Christians come next to you, around you, to help you discern that and challenge you in some of the, the ways you are thinking about God's will, you will not find it good 
You will not find it acceptable. You will not find it perfect. And the goal of being transformed through the renewal of the mind is so that we may grow in the right discernment of God's will in every life circumstance, in every life situation. Well, friends, God's mercies lead us to a total life devotion to God. And God's mercies motivate us to live a transformed life. Well, friends, I wonder if you have been thinking about the mercies of God as more than just his electing grace and his saving grace. I wonder if you have been thinking about the mercies of God as the motivation for living transformed lives. Paul says, brothers, dear Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, I appeal to you. Live this way. On what foundation do I appeal to you? In light of the mercies of God. If you're not a Christian, I don't want you to misunderstand. You cannot live these, these verses and become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, come to the Lord. Put your faith and trust in the Lord. Repent of your sins. And the, the new life that God brings to your soul will begin renewing your mind. Will begin enabling you to live this way. And will motivate you to live this way. So if you're not a Christian, come to the Lord. Trust Him, repent of your sins. And put your entire trust in Him, reliance on Him. But if you are a Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ... Let's talk about the mercies of God, not merely as the mercies that save us, but also as the mercies that motivate our transformation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have been so merciful to us. You have been merciful to us in Jesus Christ, ultimately. He gave his life he became human, took on human flesh so that he would give his body for us. Would you now, by your spirit, enable us who have experienced your salvation to be willing and eager to give our body as an offering, as a sacrifice to you. Help us to do so. And thus display the power of the gospel to transform us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.